Hello, welcome to the Market Weekly Podcast. I'm Daniel Morris, Chief Market Strategist, and I'm joined this week by Cedric Schultz, Head of Global Sovereigns, Inflation and Rates, to discuss the outlook for inflation. And I think a year and a half ago before the pandemic, and you wanted to talk to someone about inflation, it was often a quite short conversation because uh, people weren't terribly interested. Uh, we were in a world of lowflation. We had been there for a decade and everyone just assumed uh, that w- it was going to go on indefinitely and people weren't terribly concerned. Uh, my how things have changed. Uh, not only, of course, have there been significant consequences from the pandemic, but the change in administration in the U.S. Uh, with the Biden administration and really dramatically large stimulus packages and proposals for more investments, more spending, uh, has changed quite a bit what people are thinking about inflation. Now, one of the questions is how much of this is just a short-term phenomenon? We're all expecting inflation to rise over the summer. But what about the longer term? Uh, If you look at what's called five-year inflation, which tries to estimate uh, inflation in five to 10 years, it isn't necessarily much higher, if at all, than where it was a couple years ago. So let's start with the short term, though. Cedric, what do you think inflation is going to do in the near term? Well, uh, Dan, so hi, and uh, thanks for thanks for having me on to discuss what I think is a is becoming an increasingly um, important topic for the markets, and getting a lot of lot of attention uh, because really the outlook for inflation is going to drive what what the Fed does, you know, where nominal yields and real yields go, and that's going to drive obviously a, a bunch of markets other than just uh, treasury markets and and the tips market. So. Uh, we're getting a lot of a lot of questions on inflation. Uh, the markets are certainly, um, um, you know, looking at this question quite closely, um, and so we've been doing a lot of lot of thinking about about risks, um, and also about uh, you know what our what our baseline forecasts are. If if we if we sort of first refer to the to the consensus, um, the consensus amongst most economists that I see is that. Uh, yes, we're going to get some some inflation in in the near term. Uh, we're going to get some base effects uh, that are going to going to come through because of uh, the fluctuations in energy prices around the pandemic, uh, and that we're we're also likely to get some temporary uh, supply bottlenecks uh, as the as the economy reopens. And there's you know a bunch of uh, categories in CPI that have been impacted by shortages of certain goods and services, um, but that ultimately we're going to see inflation come back. Year-over-year inflation is going to come back down after this temporary increase. And and I think that that view is driven by really um, reference to a few things. You know, the stability of inflation expectations, the fact that the Phillips curve has been pretty flat historically, the Phillips curve being the sensitivity of of wages to the tightness of the labor market, um, and the suggestion that companies don't have a lot of uh, a lot of pricing power um, to 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 pass higher costs on, uh, and that ultimately there's so much international competition across many goods and services that that inflation is is going to go back to where it was, and we're going to continue with this sort of inflation theme. So that's the consensus. Um, I, I take uh, perhaps predictively because I'm a, I'm an inflation-linked bond portfolio manager, and so I'm not I'm not completely unbiased on this topic. But uh, I, I do think there are some significant uh, upside risks longer term as well as short term. So, so your question is really about the short term. And um, really, I think what, what there is to say there is that uh, obviously we're getting these base effects uh, from, from energy prices. The price of gasoline per gallon fell a lot. 
uh, in in April of 2020. And so as we make our way, you know, to the 12 month mark, uh, we've seen gasoline prices go back up quite a lot, and that's been the primary driver of headline inflation. We've also, you know, seen prices of certain lockdown sensitive services uh, come come off meaningfully, and then sort of rebound as the economy is is reopening, and so. So that's likely to add to the base effects. And, but beyond that, of course, we do have these bottleneck effects um, that are that are going to impact prices over the coming months. We've got, for example, quite uh, well-discussed uh, problem finding semiconductors. There's been problems on the supply side, uh, on the semiconductor front, problems with logistics, a fire at one of the major manufacturers. That's led to shortages of, of chips for cars. And for uh, things like home appliances, you know, dishwashers, uh, washing machines, that kind of thing, which is creating the opportunity for prices to go up in in, in some of those categories. So the, the prices of used cars are going up meaningfully, as are things like washing machines. Um, we, we could also see uh, over the summer, we could also see potentially some shortages uh, on the labor front as well. Not every worker that got, either got furloughed or voluntarily chose to not take the risk to go to work during the pandemic is necessarily going to come back, uh, at least immediately. The, the benefits that are being provided by the government in terms of enhanced uh, unemployment benefits are pretty generous, and those will stay on until September. And then, of course, many people will be reluctant to come back until they feel it's safe to do so. So, uh, you know, we, we we see that there are some problems in some industries with, with getting qualified workers to come back. Um, and so, uh, you know, companies are paying higher wages in some cases, or even just bonuses to get people to work in the current environment. So in the near term, you know, we're seeing a pretty decent bounce uh, in inflation. And we think headline could go as high as something like 3.8% before it comes back down, um, you know, towards something more, more like 2 2.5%, something like that. I think it's going to at least surprise some people when they see a 3.8%. 8% headline inflation this summer. So we'll be interesting to see how the market reacts. A little more further out, uh, what do you think about the cyclical outlook then? Well, um, we are we are already seeing some cyclical pressures uh, coming to bear uh, in in CPI uh, and just in, in inflation pressures, you know, measured measured beyond CPI. Um, so obviously the global economy is is gradually reopening. Some countries are, are further ahead of that than others. Obviously, China managed to clamp down on the virus much more effectively and quickly. Uh, so their uh, their economy came back uh, essentially back to back to full capacity uh, some uh, some months ago. Uh, that's obviously driven uh, you know a lot of demand for things like commodities. But the U.S. now is reopening. Uh, Europe is catching up in terms of its uh, vaccination drive. Uh, so this sort of coordinated global reopening uh, combined with some logistical pressures and a lack of investment in some some commodities and the fact that you know many companies had drawn down on on inventories and are now looking to restock means that uh, well, we're seeing commodity prices rise. We're seeing all sorts of input uh, input prices uh, go up. And and actually, if you listen to many of the earnings calls uh, over the last few weeks, CFOs and CEOs are indicating that those higher input prices are getting passed on in many cases. Um, and that's getting confirmed in things like, you know, beyond the anecdotes of the earnings calls, it's getting confirmed in things like the ISM prices paid surveys, uh, uh, output prices uh, that you see in, in PPI. So there is some reason to think that Companies do actually at the moment have some pricing power. 
And there's solid reason for that, because of course, when you look at household incomes over the pandemic period, at least in the United States, you saw such an extremely generous uh, set of fiscal measures brought in for income replacement that actually, you know, personal incomes went up. So uh, I think it was, uh, you know, Warren Buffett that sort of made the point that, uh, you know, we're, we're able to pass on prices because people are so flush with, uh, flush with cash. Um, so, so you're seeing it on the input side, on the output side, and, uh, you know, a lot of consumer goods companies are, are indicating that they are in the process of ramping up, uh, ramping up their, their pricing. Uh, you're also seeing a bounce back uh, on the rental side. So owner's equivalent rents and primary rents and CPI fell significantly last summer um, because of the loss of income of many, many renters, many of whom work in services sectors that were particularly badly hit by the lockdowns. So their ability to pay rent uh, declined and you saw quite sharp declines in in primary rents in many major cities. And of course you had you had you know people leaving the cities to find themselves more space to to, to live out the pandemic uh, lockdown. But now what you're seeing is rents are coming back up as they should be. Incomes are recovering from the employment side, uh, from particularly generous tax measures and 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 benefits that are, that are coming from, from the Biden administration. And of course, house prices are going up. So all of that combination of things is is meaning that, you know, people are now able to, to pay those rents again and landlords are asking for higher rents. And so rents having fallen are, are coming back up. So, you know, that's a pretty clear sort of cyclical, cyclical impact. And then of course, you know, in, in I think in, in coming months, we could well see further cyclical pressures arrive because the monetary and fiscal policy mix that is being applied to the U.S. economy is so expansionary uh, that it's likely to essentially close the output gap uh, in in just a few in just a few months. I think we were likely to get back to sort of full employment by probably mid uh, mid 2022. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if that leads to a recovery in in wages uh, at some point, and um, you know, high costs again for businesses, and so there is a, a pretty significant risk uh, that the output gap closes very quickly, and indeed that the economy could could overheat. I mentioned at the beginning how things have changed, and I mentioned the pandemic, and and mentioned the new administration. One thing I failed to mention, which as far as inflation is concerned, is probably uh, at least as important, and that's. Uh, the fact that the Fed has changed the way it thinks about inflation and has a, a new inflation framework. Could you maybe explain exactly what that is and, and what it means? Yeah, so so the change in the Fed's framework sort of flew a little bit under most people's radar, I think, uh, happening as it did in the middle of last summer when everybody was focused on on the pandemic. But actually the change is, is pretty important and, and, and pretty pretty radical. Um, essentially, the, the the Fed undertook a, a framework review, um, having recognised that they had failed to hit their inflation target for a number of number of years, uh, and and some of that was really because they miscalibrated their inflation models and really didn't fully understand inflation dynamics. So they they ended up tending to raise rates too early and tighten policy a little too early, and. Um, and getting getting as a result an inflation undershoot that over time has threatened the stability of inflation expectations. Now the, the Fed won't admit it, 
Um, you know, the closest they'll say it's is that inflation expectations have drifted towards the lower end of the range that's consistent with stability. That's about as much as they'll they'll admit to. But but essentially, uh, the fact that they've had to change the framework uh, is uh, is an implicit recognition that they they haven't done a great job at steering uh, steering inflation back up to target. So, what does the what does the new framework do? Well, essentially, it says that. Um, they will now take a reactive approach to tightening policy rather than a proactive approach. The old, the old approach was to, you know, your team of economists makes makes its inflation forecasts, and if inflation is projected to overshoot the target, then you need to tighten policy a little bit until that projection comes back down, and is uh, is consistent with your two percent PCE target. Um, now, of course, if your projections are consistently wrong or consistently optimistic, then you have that undershoot. Um, and so, as a result, um, uh, the, the the Fed under Chairman Powell has said, "Okay, well, um, you know, there are significant risks to this undershoot, especially when we're operating close to the effective lower bound. Uh, we cannot afford to let inflation expectations drift much lower, or we could end up in a scenario like Japan, where." where you, you have persistently low inflation, potentially a deflationary trap. So what we're going to do is to essentially be reactive in the way we, we change policy. So we'll wait for actual inflation to pick up. We'll, you know, we'll wait until the labor market is really fully employed. Uh, we'll take a much broader definition of full employment. Uh, make sure that everybody in society is, is participating in, in wage gains um, and just just see where the data takes us. And perhaps the point at which they tighten is when unemployment is, gets down to 2%, and then finally inflation starts to pick up. So it's a reactive approach rather than a proactive approach. But what it, what it essentially means is that you take your time before lifting, lifting rates. The other component of this, of course, is that what they're looking to do is reset inflation expectations by engineering a persistent overshoot of inflation above, above the target. Now, uh, you know what we're talking about is a is a moderate uh, inflation overshoot for some time. What does moderate mean? What does for some time mean? We don't really know. It buys them obviously uh, plenty of flexibility to not 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 define that too much. But essentially, this is this is a makeup strategy that uh, is intended to make us uh, hopeful that, uh, that that the Fed is going to generate that overshoot. And when they do then because expectations are adaptive, you know, people learn off, off recent experience, uh, it will reset those inflation expectations. Now, it's radical. It's a promise to make up for inflation undershoots. Um, and it's a recognition that uh, the primary problem is inflation expectations. Obviously, the criticism of it is that uh, this is, may have been applied too late. Um, and uh, there's a question as to whether or not they can even get Actual inflation to go higher and therefore drive up inflation expectations, and so that's, you know, that's uh, that's where the market is 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 skeptical. But the key really here is to shift inflation expectations, and this is what they're trying to do. Um, and so you see that every time that they come out with a speech, the message is consistent: we will not tighten policy until inflation is at target and likely to overshoot for some time. That leads right into my next question, then, because most of the things that you've been explaining are pointing to these increasing inflationary pressures. But if we look exactly at inflation expectations further out, five years, 10 years, they haven't really changed that much. And I would imagine that that has to do with a lot of the structural factors that were there before the pandemic, uh, before the Biden administration, before the new framework, and arguably will be thereafter. But at the same time, the world is changing. So how do you see those structural factors 
affecting inflation? Yeah, so um, you know everybody is talking about the pandemic and how how things will be different, um, how the the structure of the economy domestically and in terms of U.S. China uh, trading relationship, for example, uh, globalization, trade policy, is uh, the role of technology. Everything is going to be a little different, uh, except it seems for inflation. Um, but let's 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 think about some of the structural changes that could have an impact on inflation. Well, so first, you know. The U.S.-China trade relationship is souring. Um, there is increasing conflict between uh, these two superpowers, and uh, conflict is happening to a degree on the trade front uh, as well. So you're getting um, tariffs on trade, you're getting restrictions on things like technology transfer and uh, and investments. Um, what you're seeing essentially is a reversal, or at least a, a stop, of this trend of globalization that we've seen over the last 20, 30 years. Less globalization uh, means less global competition, and arguably that's, uh, that's inflationary. Uh, the other thing, of course, is that you're seeing global supply chains being uh, reorganized. The pandemic really indicated that, um, or made it clear that some of these global supply chains are are vulnerable to logistical problems. Uh, you know, you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket in case there's a pandemic in that uh, in that particular country. Uh, so lots of companies are looking to um, diversify their suppliers and also bring some of those uh, manufacturing um, hubs back home. Uh, so this disruption of global supply chains or rebuilding and reorganization takes away some of the benefits of specialization and trade, of course. But it will make things more robust. But ultimately, uh, it's a potential it's a potential inflationary uh, inflationary force as well. Then there's also the big one in terms of in terms of structural changes, uh, and that's what's going on with demographic and this potential. Well, this this demographic reversal that is taking place, particularly in China and to a to a degree in um, to a degree in some European uh, countries as well. So. You know, if the last 30 years were dominated by uh, a rapid increase in the in the size of the Chinese working age population and the transfer of those workers from agriculture to the cities where they could get involved in tradable services and tradable goods, um, and uh, you know, combined with uh, China's access to 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 global markets, um, then what is happening on Chinese demographics over the next 20, 30, 40 years should be a, should be a, a cause for worry from that perspective because we're going to see a significant decline in China's population overall and uh, working age population. Uh, and the same the same sorts of things are happening in, in, in European countries. Now, what does that mean? What it means, well, you're, gonna, you're gonna see high dependency ratios, which is gonna drive up pressure on, on pension and healthcare systems. Uh, all of that is gonna put government budgets uh, under pressure. But as we've seen with aus with the austerity um, exercise after the great financial crisis, that, that hasn't been repeated uh, during the pandemic. There is no political appetite for, for austerity. Um, so you know, more pressure on government budgets, but no, no desire to cut back expenditures uh, means you need to tax more. Um, and it's not clear that the governments are going to be able to you know, drive up the tax burden uh, enough to to stabilize or to, to to equilibrate the economy, and as a result, guess who's going to be buying that government debt? It's going to continue to be central banks, 
you're going to see uh, increased uh, debt uh, debt monetization, and as a result, you're going to see potentially you know more more inflation because you're monetizing more and more of the of the national debt. The other thing that's worth pointing out, of course, is that you know if 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 China's uh, demographics are going into reverse, then this this secular stagnation episode that we've been in, where there's been just too much global saving, um, could come to an end. And uh, more retirees who are in dis-saving mode rather than savings mode uh, mean those excess savings disappear, um, which will drive up real yields as there's more competition for loanable funds. And so that pressure for real yields to rise could well come into conflict with debt burdens already quite elevated, generate stresses from a debt sustainability perspective, generate a conflict with some of the other spending priorities that, that need to happen, things like uh, you know climate change mitigation. Um, and again, that'll be a, another trigger for central banks to come in and essentially you know buy buy some of this debt and essentially print uh, print yuan or print uh, print uh, dollars or print euros uh, in exchange for that debt. So if you you know if you've got that set of factors together, more protectionism, a demographic reversal, central banks that are moving towards you know average inflation targeting, where they're looking to generate overshoots, um, these are these are a lot of structural factors that could that could change uh, inflation psychology uh, over time, um, or indeed perhaps more quickly. So I would think it's safe to say that, if nothing else, the risks of an increase in inflation have risen with the cumulative impact of the spending, uh, the pandemic structural changes, and the Fed's new framework. Uh, well, I think, unfortunately, that's all the time we have to talk about inflation today. So if I can try to summarize a bit what Cedric has shared with us, in the near term, uh, pretty much everyone, I think, knows inflation is going to be rising partly a function of base effects given low oil prices, among other things, last year. Normalizing this year, we have cyclical factors. Uh, demand is increasing. We have the fiscal stimulus that still has to play out. Uh, but then the question is, what comes next? Uh, is inflation going to go back to where it was before? Maybe, maybe not. It'll depend on the sensitivity of wages to the level of unemployment. It'll depend on how much pricing power companies have. In the longer term, it'll depend on such structural factors as the reversal of globalization, US-China tensions, restructuring of supply chains, and crucially, demographics. So a lot, a lot to think about. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you do have any further questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to your BNP Paribas Asset Management contact. My thanks to Cedric for sharing his insights. Please join us next week when I'll be speaking with Victoria Whitehead about the outlook for corporate credit in Europe. Until then, we hope you stay safe and take care. This podcast presentation includes a discussion on current market events and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BMP Paribas Asset Management. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the publication date.